Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1203, The Narco-Fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang, Part 10. This is being recorded on September 10th of the year 2021. Uh, before I get into the main body of the program, uh, as always, three links. One of those, these are at the top of every program description and at the top of each Food for Thought post. One of the links will enable you to subscribe to the comments made on the uh, or for the SpitfireList.com website, mostly by our contributing editor, Terra Fractal, sometimes by others. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the WFMU podcasts. Uh, sister station, WFMU, is podcasting for the record. So if podcasts are the best way for you to consume the program, then do so, please. And the third link will enable you to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive. Uh, that contains all of my, uh, at this point, 42 years worth of work through, for the record, 1156, plus a small library of easy-to-download PDF files uh, of old anti-fascist books. Again, there is a link to click on to obtain that, and I would recommend that people do that. I get no money from that. Now, uh, we're going to continue with our presentation of things that might seem to be an awfully long way from home to either people who are young and or the uninitiated. In fact, uh, the foundation of so much of what is going on today, in particular, uh, the attempted destabilization of China, probably at least up to a point successful, something that I think is a prelude to a third world war, and I think one is coming. Uh, we are going to be talking about the past of China, which is the foundation upon which not only the present of China is based, but so much of what has come uh, to pass in the United States as well. One of the fundamental elements of Chiang Kai-shek and his Kuomintang, as the title of this series indicates, is drugs. The narcotics traffic is a foundational element, and it is one of the things that uh, helped to evolve into the U.S. government's massive involvement in the narcotics traffic today. And so much of what we uh, think about today and what we're involved with, uh, including what I think is a resuscitated China lobby, uh, the resuscitated McCarthyism of the far right. Bear in mind that Donald Trump's political mentor and legal counsel for many years was Roy Cohn, the chief counsel to Joe McCarthy and his uh, witch hunting. And uh, that, again, is another foundational element. Uh, in our last program, we spoke about, among other things, the political defenestration of General Joseph Stilwell. He was the top U.S. military officer in the China-Burma theater during World War II. He clashed with Chiang Kai-shek about many things, including and especially Chiang's collaboration with the Japanese and his preference for husbanding his military strength uh, for eventual use or present use against the Chinese communists rather than fighting the Japanese. Uh, a combination 
of Stilwell's unwillingness to tolerate the narrow, deep, endemic corruption that was another of the foundational elements of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang, and uh, the fact that the State Department in Washington, D.C., basically uh, shared the state religion of anti-communism with Chiang Kai-shek and uh, a great many of his American supporters. We are going to continue in this program with uh, the political defenestration, the political destruction of many of the China watchers within the State Department who were warning about the fact that uh, what Chiang Kai-shek was doing uh, ultimately would lead to the ascent of the Chinese communists. Uh, that, by the way, was even the assessment of T.V. Sung, a uh, corrupt fascist tycoon whose uh, Tremendous influence we will be dealing with today and even in, even more in programs to come. However, in 1930, in the early 1930s, TV Sung told an interview with that if Chiang Kai-shek would not fight the Japanese, then uh, basically the Chinese people would side with the communists who were doing a very effective job of fighting the, the uh, Japanese. Uh, in the program that we're going to be doing this evening, we're going to take a look at uh, State Department uh, officers like uh, Jack or John Service, who were pointing out that, again, Chiang Kai-shek was not working, and that if he uh, continued to be as corrupt as he was, and if he was given a blank check by Washington, which he was, uh, then ultimately uh, the control of China would go to the Chinese Communist Party and Mao Zedong. Uh, the State Department establishment, and sadly, uh, a lot of people within Franklin Delano Roosevelt's administration uh, did not share the concern of people like John Service, and rather than listen to what they were saying, they attributed the warnings that John Service and others were giving about what Chang would do to China and uh, the ultimate uh, result of that being the ascent of the Chinese Communist Party after the war. Uh, they were interpreting that as being an endorsement of that, and hence uh, the battle cry of the China lobby and the McCarthyites who lost China. Uh, what is worth noting is that uh, the descendants of missionaries in U.S. missionaries in China comprise both some of the more realistic and sane uh, experts on China within the State Department and also the dominant element within the reactionary pro-Chang dogmatic anti-communist segment of the State Department who ultimately uh, wound up uh, in supporting Chang and thereby driving China into the arms of the Chinese communists. Uh, their position was, frankly, the missionary position toward China. That remains the dominant position of the U.S. today, and that uh, is pun intended. For our uh, 
discussion this evening, we will once again be turning to a magnificent book. This is The Sung Dynasty, authored by Sterling Seagrave, published in hardcover by Harper and Rowe. There is also a softcover edition of the book. is sadly out of print, but there are copies available from various news book services, the Tropical River among them. Uh, this is a book well worth uh, reading. In fact, I emphatically recommend it. Uh, bear in mind that in 1985, when he published it, uh, Sterling Seagrave and his wife Peggy, who helped him out with the book to a great extent, were the focal point of a Kuomintang hit team that was formed in Taiwan to come to the U.S. That led Sterling and Peggy to uh, decamp to a sailboat that Sterling made, and they lived uh, on that sailboat and moved from place to place for quite some time. Now, of uh, the defenestration, the political defenestration and destruction of the Samer China Watchers within the State Department, uh, we read as follows. The eyes and ears of the U.S. government in Chongqing, that was the capital of the nationalist Chinese and Kuomintang, the eyes and ears of the U.S. government in Chongqing were a handful of old China hands, several of them the children of missionaries, while some went on to have long and distinguished careers in the foreign service. For our purposes, the most important were those whose careers were short-lived, Jack's service, O. Edmund Club, two Bs, John Peyton Davies, and John Carter Vincent. They were among those who were forced out of government and otherwise were persecuted during the McCarthy era for reporting unwelcome news about China. According to the witch hunters, bear in mind that Roy Cohn, uh, Donald Trump's political mentor and for many years his attorney, was one of them. According to the witch hunters, these were the Americans who, quote, lost China, unquote. The China Watchers message essentially was that no matter how much Washington wanted Chiang Kai-shek to, quote, run, unquote, China, he was about to lose it to the communists. This was something that their immediate superiors at the State Department simply did not want to hear. It was contrary to the prevailing myth. The observers in Chongqing were accused of being in favor of what they predicted, in favor of communism. In fact, they were only warning their government of a course of events that now seemed certain so that a realistic policy could be developed. Washington reacted with deep suspicion and hostility and insisted on nailing the American flag the more tightly to the mast of Chang's sinking ship. China is in a mess, reported Jack's service in a typical memorandum on March 20th, 1944. And uh, going on to quote him verbatim, China is in a mess for the sorry situation as a whole. Chang and only Chang is responsible. Chang will cooperate if the U.S. upon which he is dependent makes up its mind exactly what it wants from him and then gets hard-boiled about it. This may mean taking an active part in Chinese affairs, but unless we do it, China will not be much of an ally. Will not be, one more time, but unless we do it, China will not be of much use as an ally. And in doing it, we may save China. 
John Peyton Davies, assigned the work with General Stilwell wrote to Harry Hopkins of FDR's State Department that, quote, the Generalissimo is probably the only Chinese who shares the popular American misconception that Chiang Kai-shek is China, unquote. Rather than being hard-boiled, Washington cobbled Chang. It became routine for the Generalissimo, or TV Song speaking for Chang, to threaten a separate peace with Japan unless their latest demands were met. One variation of this threat was for TV or Chang to warn that they would get help from Moscow if they could not get it from Washington, which, if anyone thought about it, was a curious threat from a government whose usual theme was anti-communism. FDR Franklin Delano Roosevelt was bulldozed. He imagined himself to have a serious grasp of the Chinese mentality. The truth was, he had first-hand contact only with Americanized Chinese like Mei Ling, uh, a.k.a. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, and TV Song, the kind other Chinese called bananas because they were only yellow on the outside, they were white on the inside. When the president met Chang in Cairo, it was FDR's first glimpse he admitted of a, quote, real oriental, unquote. Roosevelt confided to Sumner Wells that he had encountered, quote, innumerable difficulties, unquote, dealing with Chang, found him highly temperamental, unquote, and personally was affronted, quote, with the regime's apparent lack of sympathy for the abject misery of the masses of the Chinese people. Nevertheless, Roosevelt instructed General Marshall to give Chang special consideration. All of us must remember that the General Lee came up the hard way to become the undisputed leader of 400 million people, an enormously difficult job to attain any kind of unity from a diverse group of all kinds of leaders. Military men, educators, scientists, public health people, engineers, all of them struggling for power and mastery, local or national, and to create in a very short time throughout China what it took us a couple of centuries to attain. Besides that, the Generalissimo finds it necessary to maintain his position of supremacy. You and I would do the same thing under the circumstances. He is the chief executive as well as the commander-in-chief, and one cannot speak sternly to a man like that or exact commitments from him the way we might do from the Sultan of Morocco. This portrayal of Chang was ridiculously inaccurate. Roosevelt seemed to be talking about himself rather than about Chang. He confessed during an interview with Edgar Snow early in 1945, quote, I was never able to form any opinion of Chang at Cairo. When I thought about it later, I realized that all I knew was what Madame Chiang Kai-shek, a.k.a. Mei-Ling Sung, told me about her husband and what he thought, unquote. American policy was thus based upon the personalities of the Changs, the Sungs, and the Kungs, rather than upon the events, the nation, or the people. This was a tribute to the Sung's extraordinary stagecraft. A couple of points before we continue. Uh, the Sung family, again, Ailing Sung, the eldest sister of uh, something of a Chinese Lucretia Borgia, uh, a very 
sinister Machiavellian brilliant and deadly woman was married to H.H. Kung, who for many years was the finance minister of China. Eventually he was deposed. Her younger sister, Mei Ling, married Chiang Kai-shek, although he had several wives and mistresses, um, and uh, it, that was arranged by A. Lang Sung. P.V. Sung, his brother P.L. Sung, and his other brother P.A. Sung were other members of the family. And it was P.L. Sung who was originally in charge of the Chinese uh, element of the U.S. Lend-Lease program. Eventually, he moved to the U.S. where he was in charge of the American side of the Lend-Lease program. Uh, much of the Lend-Lease, that there was a total of roughly 3.5 billion dollars in U.S. Lend-Lease to aid to China. That is a tremendous amount of money. That is in World War II dollars, and much of it was given, as we have seen, uh, to the Japanese by Chang's corrupt generals. Much of it was kept by the generals to market on the black market. And as we shall see, the Sung family themselves, particularly P.V. Sung, kept, basically, they stole a lot of the American lease and used that to augment their tremendous fortune. P.V. Sung at one point was the richest man in the world, and as we looked at in 1142, and as we will come back to in other programs, he was deeply involved in both the Cairo and Tehran conferences in 1943, along with his wife, Madam, uh, 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 actually no, it wasn't T.V. Sung, but his daughter, Mei Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madam Chiang Kai-shek, and Chiang Kai-shek were involved with the Cairo and Tehran conferences, and that gave them a lot of control over the, or, or, say, over the post war world. We're going to be looking more at P.V. Sung's role in losing the American Lend-Lease of aid to China, and also the tremendous influence that the Sung family in general, and P.V. Sung in particular, were able to wield over the State Department's perception of Chiang Kai-shek. Something to note, we've mentioned this before, but among the things that appears to have aided Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, obtuse understanding of China was the fact that uh, one element of his in-law, the Delano family, and of course FDR stands for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, they were involved, like many of the American elite, with the Chinese opium traffic. And so uh, at places, Sterling Seagrave hints pretty directly that that uh, sort of put blinders on FDR's political vision, at least as far as China went. Now, um, the influence that the Sung family, and T.V. Sung in particular, wielded over the State Department and uh, their, <laughs> one hesitates to call it understanding, but their point of view vis-a-vis China, is further developed here, as we looked at in our last program, uh, when the China watchers, when the uh, China hands at the State Department would submit reports, those ultimately would wind up being read and interpreted for FDR and the State Department by elements of the Song family. So as far as FDR was concerned, uh, the cognitive grasp of things 
Chinese came from Chiang Kai-shek's allies, the Sung family. Eventually, there was friction between the Sung family as the nationalist-slash-Kuomintang regime disintegrated, and uh, eventually, uh, most of the Sung family uh, gravitated toward the U.S. and continued to pad their enormous fortune. Again, a lot of that came from the fact that T.V. Sung, using his brother's influence, his brother was T.L. Sung, was able to divert a tremendous amount of the $3.5 billion, that's World War II dollars, in U.S. lend-lease aid to China into his own pockets. Uh, Sterling Seagrave writes about that. There is another aspect to this unfortunate handling of American policy toward Chang's China which came to light only because of hitherto secret FBI documents which were declassified in 1983 in the course of a Freedom of Information inquiry for this book. One more time. There is another aspect to this unfortunate handling of American policy toward Chang's China, which has come to light only because hitherto secret FBI documents were declassified in 1983 in the course of a Freedom of Information Act inquiry for this book. Among the 1,000 pages of documents is a portion of a memorandum for the FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover dated January 9, 1943, only a few days after Jack's service had returned to Washington from China. Although the memo had been, quote, laundered, unquote, in a half-hearted attempt to disguise the identity of the source referred to, with all key names blacked out, it may have been either author John Gunther, who had just come back from China, or Jack Service himself, because of the nature of the information he gave and the fact that he was the only China watcher to return from Chongqing in over a year. It sounds like Service and includes details and observations that parallel his published memoirs. But Gunther had just spent a lot of time with Service in Chongqing, and had met the people described in the memo. The memo demonstrates a personal knowledge or intimate understanding of the Sung's and contains a brutal anecdote that could only have been told by Ching Ling, uh, a.k.a. Madam Sun Yat-sen, to someone she trusted. The interview was conducted and transcribed by the Bureau's L.B. Nichols. That's N-I-C-H-O-L-S. Nichols told her J. Edgar Hoover in an introduction that he had gone to great pains to satisfy himself that the source knew what he was talking about and was telling the truth. The Sung family, the informant pointed out by way of introduction, was the most influential in China and, quote, practically had a death grip, unquote. The Sung's, quote, have always been money-mad, and every move they made was prompted by their desire to secure funds, unquote. Because of this, quote, there was a gigantic conspiracy afoot to defraud the Chinese from materials they would ordinarily receive through lend-lease and to divert considerable of this money to the Sung family. One more time. The Sung family, the informant pointed out by way of introduction, was the most influential in China and, quote, practically had a death grip, unquote. The Sung's, quote, have always been money mad and every move they made was prompted by their desire to secure funds, unquote. Because of this, quote, there was a gigantic conspiracy afoot to defraud the Chinese from materials they would ordinarily receive through lend-lease 
and to divert considerable of this money to the Sung family, unquote. The informant pointed out that Chang had been legally married before, and therefore, in his opinion, Madame Chang was, quote, not the legal wife, unquote. However, she was, of course, closely associated with T.V. Sung, who, quote, is one of the motivating forces in the Sung family to further their own ends, unquote. When T.V. came to America, he set up the Universal Trading Corporation, staffed with Chinese, to handle the flow of lend-lease materials. So far, the informant asserted approximately $500 million has been allocated to China from lend-lease, this is as of 1943, and a large part of that will ultimately be diverted to the Sung family, unquote. Ultimately, it was like $3.5 billion in World War II dollars, and an awful lot of that went either into the pockets of the Sung family, into the pockets of the Japanese, uh, or into the pockets of Chiang Kai-shek's uh, Green Gang military and civilian associates. The informant goes on to say, the Sung organization, he said, is very closely knit. It is ruthlessly operated. If anybody gets out of line, they are either bought off or exterminated. The real brains of the group is reputed to be Madame Kung, a.k.a. Ailing Sung, an evil and clever woman. She sits in the background and directs the whole family. P.V. Sung is the actual manipulator and carries out many of her ideas. They have so closely welded their organization that today everything that happens in China must go through at least one member of the Song family. Madame Kung is reputed to have hired assassins in China. One more time. Madame Kung is reputed to have hired assassins in China. Again, uh, if you got out of line, the very quiet, very Machiavellian ailing Song, a.k.a. Madame Chung, uh, Madame Kung, excuse me, have you killed? Continuing. Many Chinese officials who are high up know of her and her activities, but have not said anything. Their fury at the Sung manipulations is equaled only by their contempt for the laxity by which the Americans have allowed themselves to be hoodwinked. Whenever anybody goes to China, such as Wendell Wilkie, Lachlan Curry, and others, they are taken into camp by the Sung family, they are taught what the Sung family wants them to know, and ordinarily do not talk to others who would be in the position to know. An official of the Treasury Department is very close to the Sung gang, unquote, evidently a reference to Arthur N. Young, who was in Chongqing as an economic advisor to Chang and wrote a book after the war whitewashing the regime, and is entertained by them constantly. One more time. An official of the Treasury Department is very close to the Sun Gang, evidently a reference to Arthur N. Young, who was in Chongqing as an economic advisor to Chang and wrote the book after the war whitewashing the regime, and he is entertained by them constantly. He should be in, in yeah, he should be in a position to know what the situation is, although he has probably been taken in by the Sungs. The informant then told the FBI that one of the ways P.V. diverted Lendley's funds into his own pocket was illustrated by reports reaching Chongqing that a freighter carrying 60 
new American battle tanks and other very expensive war material furnished by Lend-Lease had been sunk. As a matter of fact, this, quote, freighter never left the West Coast with any tanks. The tanks were never made in the first place. This is a positive illustration of the manner in which the Sons have been diverting funds from Lend-Lease inasmuch as the money was allocated for the 60 tanks, unquote. The memorandum goes on to say that Dr. Hu Shi, S-I-H, who had been the Chinese ambassador to Washington before T.V. Sung's arrival, the same Hu Shi, who had been a pupil of Charlie Sung as a boy in Wu Sung, had been recalled because he had begun to suspect that these diversions were taking place. And uh, we're going to review very briefly before we further develop the uh, corruption and the use of uh, American Lemleys to enrich the coffers of the Sung family uh, at the expense, by the way, of the war effort against the Japanese. And bear in mind that the brother, the middle brother of uh, the Sung family was T.L. Sung. The middle brother, P.L., who had been in charge of Lend-Lease during World War II, originally on the Chinese end, then eventually on the American end, as we will see, and whose American roots were in New York City because something became something of an enigma. Sources in Washington said P.L. worked as a secret consultant at the Treasury Department in the 1950s and gave in what they would not say. Treasury claims it has no record of a T.L. song whatsoever. And uh, one of the many subtexts of uh, the dynamics that we are relating here, and that is the looting of China. I think one can best understand the contemporary reality of China by understanding the looting that uh, has basically, to which the country has been subjected for the last couple of hundred years. Uh, the British and other European and American imperial powers of the 19th century, then uh, Japan. Uh, we will review in our next, or perhaps the program after that, some of the Golden Lily program looting of China. The U.S. then, of course, signed on to that when uh, the Black Eagle Trust and uh, other related funds were formed, as we have looked at in our discussions of uh, the book Gold Warriors, again by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave. As we will see in our next program, Chiang Kai-shek, one of his last moves was to loot the Bank of China, basically empty China of as much of its gold bullion as he could, and that was then furthered in the post-war period with the aid of U.S. intelligence. And we'll talk about that uh, in, if not our next program, the public program after that, or perhaps two. But again, the losing of China, I think, has in many ways shaped not only the economic-slash-political landscape of the country, but its attitude toward uh, the West, which, you know, frankly, is is uh, <laughs> one that has been, uh, well, how would you feel uh, toward someone who had systematically robbed you for a long time? It kind of speaks for itself. Now, back to the Sung family and the uh, Lend-Lease. Uh, one of the things, there is an awful lot in this book, and uh, we, we're not going to be able to get to any, well, an awful lot of it. A lot of it is quite funny. It really is uh, dark humor, but uh, the almost hypnotic 
spell that was uh, cast by Madame Chiang Kai-shek, a.k.a. Mei Ling Sung, over the U.S. during her 1943 tour. Uh, people were absolutely bamboozled by her. There was tremendous infighting. Chiang Kai-shek eventually took up with a mistress, and uh, Mei Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madame Chiang Kai-shek, complained that the only time he ever put his false teeth in was when that man, unquote, went to see, quote, that woman, unquote. One time, Madame Chiang Kai-shek came home to find a pair of high-heeled women's shoes under Chiang's bed. She took one of them and hit him in the head with it. There was all sorts of infighting like that, and uh, Chiang uh, eventually got into it with the songs, too. Um, TV song broke with Chiang, not because he was uh, a Boy Scout, he was anything but, but he understood that what Chiang was doing would ultimately drive the Chinese people into the arms of the Chinese communists. That was the same thing that the savvier of the China watchers in the State Department had been warning about, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek basically uh, broke with TV Song. At one point, they had an argument, and uh, Chiang Kai-shek threw a teacup at his head. That is the incident referred to here. Immediately after the teacup-throwing incident in Chongqing, T.V. Sung used his position as foreign minister to issue his brother T.L. Sung a special diplomatic passport and sent him hurriedly to Washington and New York. T.L. was actually being whisked out of China to take over as chief purchasing agent and administrator of all U.S. lend-lease supplies before they left for China one more time. He had been in charge of lend-lease in China, which enabled him not only to channel money into uh, TV Song's pocket, but uh, also to uh, turn a blind eye to the tremendous traffic in U.S. lend-lease goods by Chang's own general and uh, civilian Green Gang, generals and Green Gang associates, and uh, much of that was ultimately sold to the very Japanese who were supposed to be uh, fighting against that equipment on the battle line. T.D. Sung then sent his brother T.L. Sung to Washington where he was in charge of the American end of the Lend-Lease program and this basically devoted, diverted, I should say, tremendous amounts of money into the Sung family coffers. Returning again to uh, the Sung dynasty, T.L. was actually being whisked out of China to take over as chief purchasing agent and administrator of all U.S. lend-lease supplies before they left for China. Since the very beginning, T.L. had been in charge of lend-lease at the Chinese end. It was a period of intense scandal when warehouse fires and sabotage were blamed for the disappearance of large quantities of U.S. war supplies. Little was reaching soldiers in the field, and General Stilwell, as the senior American lend-lease administrator, protested that it was being siphoned off through official corruption. One Chinese general in charge of the fleet of army trucks that carried lend-lease supplies up the Burma Road was famous for having his trucks disappear only when they were fully loaded until his private warehouses were bulging. The director of the Southwest Trading Corporation, which provided the 600 trucks carrying lend-lease supplies, was T.L. Sung. Less than two hours after reaching China, the goods were sometimes for sale on the black market. At other times, they were never seen again. In all, 
some $3.5 billion of U.S. Lend-Lease supplies were supposed to have passed through TV's and TL's hands during the war, either on the Chinese end of the pipeline or before it left Universal Trading Corporation in New York. Again, that's $3.5 billion in World War II dollars. That is a lot of money. Little of this reached its destination. A senior official of the British Foreign Office once speculated that, quote, the Sons diverted billions of U.S. dollars to their own pockets, and much of the money never did get out of the U.S., unquote. By moving TL's base of operations from China to America, TV put his brother out of the Generalissimo's reach, out of the reach of the Chen brothers and Tai Lee, the Chen brothers ran the CBIS, Secret Service, or basically Intelligence Service and a terrorist organization, and Tai Lee run, run, ran the NBIS, the Military uh, Intelligence Organization, and a basically terrorist organization, domestic terrorist organization, the Secret Police. Again, Chen brothers, CBIS, Secret Police Contingent, Tai Lee, the Himmler of China, the NBIS, Secret Police Contingent. One more time. By moving TL's base of operations from China to America, TV put his brother out of the Generalissimo's reach, out of the reach of the Chen brothers and Tai Lee, and out of the immediate reach of A. Ling Sung, a.k.a. Madame Kung. No matter what happened to TV's political fortunes in Chongqing, control of the U.S. cornucopia was retained in TV's hands through TL. This placed TL in a position of extraordinary leverage, negotiating contracts worth many millions of dollars to the biggest corporations in America. He set up office in New York City, the home of his wife's wealthy Chinese family, and lived at the Kung Mansion in Riverdale, which had been seeing little use. Eventually, there were indications that A. Lang Sung and her husband, H. H. Kung, uh, for many years the chief banker in China, were involved in setting up something of a palace coup. Again, there is a a tremendous wealth of information just simply due to the limitations of time. This is a, you know, a real life marathon series. Uh, we have not got time to get on. Much of it is really funny. Uh, as I have uh, mentioned, uh, the Henry Luce Publishing Empire absolutely lionized Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek, a.k.a. Mei Ling Sung. Uh, Mei Ling Sung was something of a... Uh, Second Coming of Joan of Arc or the Virgin Mary or something like that. Again, she was absolutely beatified, and uh, <laughs> uh, she was less than saintly. And the Americans were completely buffaloed by her. Uh, Wendell Wilkie, who challenged uh, FDR for the uh, presidency in 1940, was at one point one of FDR's uh, emissaries to the uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Madame Chiang Kai-shek. And uh, Madame Chiang Kai-shek, who at that point was basically taking a backseat to Chiang's mistress, uh, was able to hint pretty directly she found Wendell Wilkie, quote, very disturbing, unquote, in other words, passionately uh, destabilizing. Wendell Wilkie was your basic garden variety schmo. I mean, he had all of the sex appeal of a turnip. So much of this is quite funny, but it really isn't very much, f very funny at all, because this 
is the foundation of so much of what we are seeing today, including, I would bet on it, I'm afraid, uh, we're going to have a third world war. So uh, <laughs> enjoy what you're seeing now because it ain't going to get better. And it was this period that saw the minting, ultimately, of uh, the China lobby. We'll talk about that later in the uh, pro- in, in this, perhaps, our next program. Uh, the uh, McCarthyite period, including uh, Roy Cohn, uh, Donald Trump's uh, ment- political mentor and, for years, his uh, lawyer, and the minting of the John Birch Society as well. Ultimately, uh, we'll be taking a look at the... Uh, uh, concretization of what became the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, the Asian branch of the Old World Anti-Communist League. Uh, again, Ailing uh, Sung, a.k.a. Madame Kung, and her husband and others uh, were, were, were organizing something of a palace coup against Chiang Kai-shek, and ultimately Chiang Kai-shek put that down. Returning again to the Song Dynasty, with the General Lee Sinnoh's approval, Pai Li arrested more than 600 army officers, and on Chiang Kai-shek's return from Cairo, 16 of the most promising young generals in the Chinese army were executed. Shortly thereafter, Chiang completely reinstated TV, fired H.H. Kung, and ordered him to get out of China, taking A-Ling and Mei-Ling with him. Certainly a power struggle had been taking place. Anyone who listened closely could hear scuffling and grunting behind the throne. Chunking was alive with plots. Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times called it a, quote, witches, fear grounds of anxieties, suspicions, and intrigue, unquote. The Kungs lost the struggle, and TV Sung won, evidently by casting his lot with the Chen brothers and Tai Lee. By the end of 1944, P.V. was again acting premier while continuing to be foreign minister. Six months later, in May of 1945, he was given the full title of premier, concurrent with foreign minister. For good measure, he was also given Kung's post of finance minister. Once again, on paper at least, P.V. Sung was one of the most powerful men in China. It was a bitter moment in the affairs of the Song dynasty, now a house divided. From 1944 on, all of them except Ching Ling, a.k.a. Madame Sun Yat-sen, became more involved in America than they were in China, devoting their full attention to building what was probably the largest fortune collectively on the planet, a fortune probably well in excess of 2 billion U.S. dollars, perhaps more than 3 billion. Again, that is in World War II dollars. It's a lot of money. The Encyclopedia Britannica was moved to say that P.V. alone was, quote, reputed to have been the richest man in the world, unquote. And but we, in... in uh, Upcoming programs will be doing a little skipping around in time because the uh, exit of Chiang Kai-shek from China, the looting of the Bank of China, uh, the 
pulling of strings behind the scenes uh, at the Cairo and Tehran conferences in 1943, Chang's uh, exit to Taiwan, where he executed uh, thousands of people in order to cement his control over Taiwan. Uh, a great many really interesting things are uh, going to be covered. We will be skipping around in time, however, a little bit. I thought by way of uh, taking a look at uh, sort of the larger political and economic uh, context here, uh, which really goes beyond China per se, and it embraces uh, China, Chiang Kai-shek, also the island of Taiwan, Japan, and uh, what became South Korea. Uh, Korea, of course, had been colonized, as we looked at in uh, for the record program 1140, 1141, and 1142 by China, by Japan, I should say, and uh, the Resistance of the Korean people uh, took place during part of what we know of as World War II and thereafter. And uh, ultimately, the South Korean government, uh, the fascist elements in Japan that were put right back in power, as we looked at in Gold Warriors, among other programs, and the Kuomintang residua in Taiwan and the enormous resources of the Sung family in the U.S. Uh, concretized into the China lobby and, again, what was known as the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. Something of an overview, and this talks about uh, the Green Gang of Chu Yuasheng, Shang Kai-shek, their collaboration with the Japanese in uh, gambling, narcotics, uh, prostitution, and so forth. And uh, to give an idea of sort of an overview of this, including not just Shang uh, Kai-shek, but also uh, Japan and uh, parts of Korea, we are again going to turn to gold Warriors, America's Secret Recovery of Yamashita's Gold by Sterling and Peggy Seagraves, published by Verso Books. And uh, the an overview of this Asian fascist and organized crime uh, milieu is presented by the Seagraves as follows. By the 1930s, gambling was on a greater scale in Shanghai than anywhere else on earth, with proceeds of more than $1 million a week. That's again, in 1930s, that was a lot of money. Tu Yuasheng's three-story Fushan Casino, that's F-U-S-A-P-N, on Avenue Foch, provided customers with chauffeured limousines. There was dog racing at Tu's Canadrome. Over a 100,000 prostitutes worked in brothels, cabarets, and dance halls like Ferrin's and Del Monte's, where white Russian women danced and more with paying clients. Once they understood each other, Tu Yuasheng became one of Chiang Kai-shek's chief backers. He shared the drug profits directly with the Generalissimo and returned was licensed by the Kuomintang government. This allowed Chiang to pretend that he was pursuing an aggressive campaign of opium suppression. But only Tu's rivals were suppressed, the Opium Suppression Bureau turned over confiscated opium to the Green Gang for conversion to heroin and morphine. The Generalissimo received his cut through the Farmer's Bank of China, owned by Tu Yuasheng, and referred to sarcastically as the Opium Farmer's Bank. 
Shang used his cup to upgrade his army, which annoyed Tokyo. During the initial Japanese assault on Shanghai in 1932, Boss Chu sent Green Gang Tufts to fight the invaders. Shanghai Shek praised him for this gallant display of patriotism, but it was only turf warfare. Two was not prepared to let the Japanese undermine his control of gambling, prostitution, and narcotics. Japanese General Doihara worked out the compromise by which the Green Gang, the Kuomintang regime, and the invading Japanese secretly divided the spoils, much as the Red, Blue, and Green Gangs had done earlier. The deal was implemented by the Ku brothers, one of whom was the Green Gang boss of the Shanghai Warfront, while the other was a Kuomintang general. We took a look at this in connection with the uh, new Fourth Army incident a couple of shows ago. One more time. The deal was implemented, implemented by the... Actually, I'll begin two, two sentences ago. Japanese General Doihara worked out a compromise by which the Green Gang, the Kuomintang regime, and the Japanese secretly divided the spoils much as the Red, Blue, and Green Gangs had done earlier. The deal was implemented by the Ku brothers, one of whom was the Green Gang boss of the Shanghai Waterfront, while the other was a Kuomintang general. This enabled the Kempeitai, the Japanese Secret Service, to open its first Shanghai brothel in 1932, while Japanese investors started cotton mills, ironworks, railways, paper mills, power plants, and banks. Where once British shipping dominated, Japanese steamships linked Yangtze River ports deep into the interior, ready to be converted into troop carriers. In violation of the deal, Japan began to subvert the Kuomintang opium monopoly by bringing in larger and larger quantities of drugs. What better way to demoralize China than by flooding it with cheap drugs from Manchuria, including heroin tablets and cigarettes laced with heroin? This caused dismay and consternation in Kuomintang and Green Gang circles. The Japanese were going opium on an unprecedented scale in Manchuria, supplementing it with opium imported by ship from Iran. The paste was converted into morphine and heroin at factories in Manchuria, Korea, and Taiwan, then smuggled directly across the strait on motorized junks to mainland warehouses owned by Mitsui, Mitsubishi, and other conglomerates. An army factory in Seoul that produced over 2,600 kilos of heroin by 1938-39 was only one of several hundred factories in Manchuria, Korea, Taiwan, and in Japanese concessions and beginning again. An army factory in Seoul, now the capital of South Korea, that produced over 2,600 kilos of heroin in 1938-1939 was only one of several hundred factories in Manchuria, Korea, Taiwan, and in Japanese concessions in mainland cities like Hankou. At its peak, more than a thousand Japanese firms were manufacturing and selling drugs, including cocaine and amphetamines. Japan so undercut Green Gang prices that at one point, the Generalissimo ordered his men to buy narcotics from the Japanese and sell them at a markup in areas controlled exclusively by the Kuomintang. 
And it's worth noting again that uh, companies like Mitsui and Mitsubishi, two of the Japanese Zaibatsu, and two of the most powerful corporate players in the dominant milieu on this earth, one that has been dominant for a long time, namely the cartel landscape, uh, Mitsui and Mitsubishi were deeply involved with the narcotics traffic, uh, as we looked at in uh, for the record program number 1175, um, the, actually, maybe, no, it was 1175. Um, Mitsubishi wields tremendous power today. Uh, there is, uh, a professor at Harvard University who is the Mitsubishi professor of Japanese studies. And he wrote a paper uh, saying basically, yeah, you know, the, the, the comfort women in uh, Korea were, Volunteer prostitutes, which is an absolute BS. And in fact, um, he is something of a uh, political water carrier for Mitsubishi, again, a dominant uh, member of the cartel system, and one that employed tremendous amounts of slave labor, including U.S. prisoners of war, with economic and the political impunity, as we have seen, uh, again, in For the Record Program 1175, among others. And again, by way of uh, tying this in with the larger time, what we're talking about with China, uh, and eventually the move to Taiwan by Chiang Kai-shek, which we're going to be talking about in our uh, next show. Uh, and by way of putting this into the post War, uh, construction of what became known as the, uh, Asian People's Anti-Communist League, basically a fascist consortium of fascist Japanese, the Kuomintang fascists, and like-minded colleagues in South Korea. And, uh, here we're going to be talking about a man named Kodama Yoshio, who had a vast fortune, uh, something like $13 billion at the end of World War II. He was a key golden lily operative, a protege of the Black Dragon Society, and someone who worked directly with people like uh, General Ku and uh, Boss Ku of the Shanghai Waterfront, and uh, was deeply involved not only in losing uh, China, but also in uh, trafficking drugs and all kinds of things in China. And as we looked at... Um, in uh, for the record program number 970, among others, uh, Kadama set up the Kadama Fund on December 8th, 1941. That was actually the day on which Pearl Harbor was bombed because uh, Japan was on the other side of the international dateline to uh, use uh, the looting of the Chinese underworld drug trafficking and so forth to help fund the Japanese Imperial Naval Air Arm talking about uh, underground funds that were channeled to the post-war Japanese uh, infrastructure. Another source of underground funds was Kadama, who was reported to have amassed some $13 billion in war loot for his personal use. This included two truckloads of diamonds, gold bars, platinum ingots, radium, copper, and other vital materials. In order to curry favor with MacArthur's men, Shukun Bunshun said that Kadama turned the radium over to ESCAT, that was MacArthur's occupation government. In Tokyo Journal, John Carroll states that at war's end, quote, Kadama had a good portion of his valuables transported to the vault of the imperial family in the imperial palace, unquote. Despite his lifelong involvement in murder, kidnapping, drugs, and extortion, Kadama is said to have been regarded by Emperor Hiroshu as a true patriot, 
possibly because of the great sums he generated for Golden Lily. This may explain why Japan's pop gangster was permitted to hide some of his loot in palace vaults. But it goes deeper to include narcotics. In the spring of 1945, Kodama made a quick trip to Taiwan to see that its many heroin factories were dismantled for return to Japan, along with remaining stocks of heroin and morphine. On his return, Kodama was assigned to be a special advisor to the emperor's uncle, Prince Higashikuni, who served as Japan's prime minister briefly at the start of the U.S. occupation. According to Kadama's own memoir, immediately after the surrender, Higashikuni had, quote, two or three of his counselors arrange a meeting, and secretly unknown to his cabinet ministers, Higashikuni visited General MacArthur in Yokohama, unquote. Kadama provides no details of what transpired at the meeting or whether he accompanied the prince. Kadama then spent two years in Sagamo prison as an indicted war criminal, but was magically released in mid-1948 when he made a deal with General Willoughby to give the CIA's $100 million equal to $1 billion in today's values. This payment bought Kadama his freedom from prison and from any prosecution for war crimes. The money was placed in one of the secret slush funds controlled by the CIA station at the U.S. Embassy. Subsequently, Kadama was put directly on the CIA payroll, where he remained for many years until his death in 1984. Tab Schultz of the New York Times wrote, quote, Kadama had a working relationship with the CIA, unquote. Chalmers Johnson said Kadama was, quote, probably the CIA's chief asset in Japan, unquote. While literally an employee of the U.S. government, Kadama continued to oversee Japan's post-war drug trade. Heroin labs were moved back not only from Taiwan, but from North China, Manchuria, and Korea. Chinese who had collaborated with Japan in drug processing and distribution were given sanctuary and began operating from Japanese soil. Two of the three major players in Asian narcotics soon died. Nationalist China's General Tai Li was assassinated in a 1946 plane crash. Shanghai Godfather Chu Yuasheng died in Hong Kong of natural causes in 1951. Kadama was left as Asia's top drug lord while on the U.S. payroll. This could have been embarrassing, for Japan's dominant role in narcotics was widely known and undisputed, but a Cold War hush descended over it like an Arctic whiteout. During the occupation, U.S. propaganda characterized Asia's drug trade as exclusive of the enterprise of leftists and communist agents. In truth, it was dominated by Kadama in Japan and by General Lee Sumo Chang to the Kuomintang armies based in the Golden Triangle. Those armies were under the direct control of the Generalissimo's son, Chang Cheng Kuo, the Kuomintang chief of military intelligence at the time. The two top Kuomintang opium warlords in the Golden Triangle, General Tuan, T-U-A-N, and General Li, L-I, spoke to us openly of this. Uh, the point here being that uh, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek uh, so basically survived the war, and it was at all times uh, inextricably linked with the uh, like-minded businesses 
of the invading Japanese. At times they were competitors, but as the Japanese were able to undercut Kuomintang production in narcotics, but ultimately uh, people like Kabama Yoshio worked with the Kuomintang before, during, and after World War II, and after Chang the camp to Taiwan. We'll talk about that in our next program. Uh, the Kuomintang forces continued to work with people like Kodama Yoshio. However, that we'll talk about in our next show. This concludes for the record program number 1203, the narco-fascism of Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang Part 10 being recorded on September 10th of the year 2021. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.